When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. Um, you guys, we are busy diving deep into what we call Rule 1 Investing or Value Investing. Rule 1 Investing, of course, comes from Buffett's two rules of investing. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. So the focus of this style of investing is making sure you don't make mistakes, which is really apropos of what we're digging into here. Mm, good point. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And because I have to start out by apologizing for my sound because I'm traveling and somehow AirPods don't work with Macs and it's ridiculous. So here we are. Yeah. With last week I was traveling. Microphone. I was up in Montana and I... I sort of had to figure it all out. And then now Danielle's in Rome and she's trying to figure it all out. So um, we were so, kind of banging away at each other on the, on the last part of this, of this checklist of the rules checklist um, story inversion. And we sort of ended with this um, sort of stalemate a little bit that I was feeling that uh, I, I believe you have to be very comfortably certain as in, you know, you're going to drive to work and not crash level of certain yeah. Um, and I felt like you were pushing back on that and saying, no, I don't think you can ever be that certain with an investment. Uh, at almost, the same level. almost. And I think that's where we kind of got our wires crossed is I 100% agree that you need to be that certain. Like we're ah. fully in alignment on that level of certainty. Oh, very good. My problem is that I find it to be insanely difficult, maybe impossible to reach that level of certainty <laughs> and thus i end up making mistakes of omission rather than commission uh, over and over and over and over so i'm rather than being on the side of throwing everything up in the air and going like well it'll be fine i'm just gonna dive in because i love to gamble in the stock market no i'm the uh keep everything close to me and safe and don't make a wrong move. So, so that's where the questions come from. It's, it's, um, it's how do you get to that level of certainty when, when it seems impossible and maybe it is impossible. Well, let me ask you this. Are you, is your level of certainty is the discomfort around the company itself or the price you're paying or both? In other words, is it a valuation oh, a really uncertainty or is it a, boy, I just don't know if, you know, Google's going to survive kind of a question. That's a very good question because they are totally different. You're exactly right. Um, I'm going to say it's by the time I get to the point of doing an inversion process, at that point, it's price. Because 
I never get to that point unless I'm like obsessed with the company and think it's amazing and think it's going to last for 50 years. And I desperately love it and want to be a part of it and go to all their shareholder meetings and, you know, genuflect in front of the headquarters. Oh, oh, it's so cool. (laughs) Take a picture when you do that, will you? We'll we'll put it out on the net. (laughs) Just do a series, just Instagram, like nothing but like genuflections. (laughs) of the market <laughs> investor and it's just me like at every chipotle on every you could make it corner. a book you can make it like a coffee table book. <laughs> well, i always wanted to do a book when i was guiding in the grand canyon i thought it'd be such a great idea to do a book of every porta potty location <laughs> which was it was an art and and everyone who's ever been down the grand canyon knows that the guides require that you not put your bedding down anywhere until they have selected the porta potty site. That is the first thing that gets done on every camp. Because that's so the most important item. It's, well, it's very important that it's private, first off, and second, yes. that it have a spectacular view. Those are the two requirements, since you're, after all, in the Grand Canyon. And <laughs> then, then everybody has to just make their place to sleep once that's been established. And therefore, these porta potty sites were spectacular. They're just like <laughs> stunningly beautiful places to sit and stare out at the canyon. It was great. I should have done it. I, you know, those you don't get a second chance you know at that kind of that's thing. That's a really good idea, actually, because that's a hilarious <laughs> gift. And that's usually what people buy coffee table books for. By the way, Dad, yeah. I have a friend who recently did the Grand Canyon trip with her family. And she said it was not terrifying because the water level isn't as high as it was back in the day. Exactly. Exactly. It made me think, oh, maybe we could do it at some point. I would love to do that with you so much. I just have to not die of fear every single day. It's just it's just really mostly a trip about beautiful hikes. Yeah. Spectacular scenery. Yeah, and only a little bit of swirling around in a whirlpool, almost dying, like every third day. (laughs) Only, let's see, you've had to grow up with all the stories. Yeah. That's a terrible (laughs) disadvantage. It really is. You know, those things are are stories over a 10-year, you know, 40 trips in the Grand Canyon. I mean, you know, there's bound to be some things that'll happen, but... They don't usually happen. But, but I think also the water level was genuinely way higher when you were guiding. Oh, so it, it was, was much more dangerous. Higher. And now they're controlling it a lot more. Yeah. You, yeah. I, I remember taking one trip where they had dropped the water levels for some reason. Um, and the water levels were down where they, they're actually down above where they are now. It was hmm. higher than the, than the average level now. And boy, did it ever flatten that river out. Wow. It was just sort of like, yeah, we're just, you know, dipping along. <laughs> and almost no rapids were worse than, you know, if they were worse, they were really easy to avoid. Yeah, it was really different. Um, background to this for everybody listening is yeah. that when I was a kid, you used to tell me bedtime stories about people almost dying in the Grand Canyon (laughs) because you thought that they were awesome stories about amazing tales of survival. And they should never let people raise children without a license. That's just unfair. (laughs) You just learned so much. And respect 
deep <sighs> respect for. Do you remember um, what I would do with you guys when I would go out on the water, like in a canoe or in a little sailboat? Yeah, you I wanted to have you over. be very confident that you could handle anything that happened. And I, I went to great lengths to show you how safe it was by tipping it over. Yeah, this is how stupid. And then we'd be it's wet like, and like pissed off and like, well, that sucked. And now we have to get this <laughs> boat back up somehow. And yep. generally not really ever want to do that again. That's your father so right there. Let's get back to this discussion about how I'm yeah. extremely risk averse and don't want to tip the boat over on <laughs> even in practice any stock <clears throat> right whatsoever. <laughs> right. Good segue. Excellent, actually. So yeah, back to uh back to this notion of of certainty um being more about price than it is a, about the actual company, which makes sense really if you think about it because some of these companies are so obviously yeah. going to be around a long 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 time into the future <clears throat> there's not a lot of question about that yeah and so it becomes a really a question of of valuing the business how do you value the business properly okay but let me slightly amend that just just we can come back to this in a minute if you want but let me just slightly amend that that some of the things i do have trouble with actually are not necessarily about price, such as like the unknowable things are the things that give me pause. Like mm. we mentioned last time, I think like the CEO, it turns out, um, has been embezzling from the company and there's right. no way as an outside investor to find that out. Um, right. Something like that, like those kinds of things are not about price. Well, I guess they would be about price in the sense that they might drop the stock price for a while, but then the company would have to recover. And that, so, that stuff yeah. does happen. And by the way, just a shout out to everybody out there, if you happen to know why we wouldn't have sued the auditors when this happened to us. We didn't sue the auditors. And looking back on it, like five years of, of, of efforts in the court systems, you know, we got a, we got a piddling amount of settlement um, but we didn't go after the auditors, and I can't figure out why. Because I mean, basically, if the if the CEO is lying, the auditors are supposed to catch it. Yeah, that's their job. Yes, but yeah. they have many protections built in so that they can't be sued for every single thing that a company hides uh, from them. So their defense is why. the company is hiding it from them as well, obviously, and they have only the information that the company hands to them. Um, so, I mean, I think when Enron happened, I wasn't an investor and I wasn't following it, but I think the auditors in that situation did end up with some liability. I, I think they did. They that. got smooshed and they went away. Yeah. So um, there are situations course. in which they pierce that veil, but I think they are uh, only in the it's most probably, egregious. Probably why our attorneys told us no. But dang. Just want to when that happens when the CEO turns into a traitor, you just want to sue everybody. It's just like, yeah, who who can we get for this? You know, absolutely. Like sue the board, and we didn't sue the board. I don't know why we didn't sue the board. I mean, they're supposed to know. They're, this is just not supposed to happen, and it does happen. Yeah, and when it does happen, you should there should be people apart from the CEO who should have seen that coming, right? I mean, Boeing, Boeing is an example of Boeing and IBM are two examples of mega huge companies, which were led by people who on hindsight 
were simply not competent for the job. I mean, there's mm -hmm. super competent people, obviously, to be even considered. Uh, certainly, I wouldn't be considered for running, you know, IBM or Boeing. But so I got to give them props for that. But then in, on hindsight, they just didn't have the licks. And as a result, both of these companies have suffered dramatically and really, to a certain degree, continue to do so over a decade. You can't do anything about that. That's something as an investor, you should be hopefully, you know, picking up on that things aren't going as well as they should. I don't know how you would, but certainly you should try. And if you can't do that, then as the company starts to suffer, you get out of there. You know, something's going on and you exit. Yeah. Um, so I think there is just a certain level of yeah. unknowables. Right. And that level and you're gonna have of to risk, deal with that. You just exactly. You just have to deal with it. So I think that's something that I've learned that I just have to deal with it. Like that's not something I'm going to be able to solve in my inversion checklist. And I, I think it's. I think it honestly is fairly rare. I really would put it on the order of a drunk crosses the highway median and nails you. You know, it's just something that you. It's not going to happen in three lifetimes to you, but. You know, it's on the order of getting hit by lightning and maybe a little worse odds than that. But I think it's about the same level. I mean, people who are running public companies that are big public companies, the kinds of things we're investing in, you know, they're a billion dollars in in value and so on. It's just they're they're by and large, they're they're pretty good people and they're gonna run yeah. things well. Yeah. And, and I, I think, think that's where the the like choosing that's where all the other parts of the checklist come in the choosing a great company that has good culture that yeah. yes like things can go wrong and probably will can't account for everybody but by and large it's a it's a decent place with really great products and a great moat that hopefully will help it bounce back yeah and i think actually that's that's the bottom line is the moat is super super critical if you've got that part right, then even when you have a CEO that's running the company badly and you don't know it, it's just drifting and you don't know it, eventually that'll start to come out and hmm. the moat will protect that company from getting crushed. Hmm. I mean, IBM, 10 years under you know mediocre at best management and um, their stock price has gone basically nowhere. But during that entire time, they were really creating a great deal of cash flow. Hmm. And investors were receiving dividends. And hmm. at the end of the day, you know, that you could have still gotten out of the company without losing money if you'd bought in right before uh, that that sort of era started. So I think, you know, if you're looking at certainty, you got to look at moat. That's super important that you understand the business well enough to determine that this company has a durable competitive advantage. You know, keyword durable here. Yeah. Right? Lots of yeah. companies get competitive advantages for a while, but... Especially, you know, and really Charlie and Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett have said <clears throat> a number of times that it's harder to invest today than back in the 1960s and early 1950s, late 1950s, kind of when they got rolling. Um, it's harder to invest because things are massively overpriced. That's one huge difference by comparison. I mean, if you look at the Wilshire GDP ratio, which is uh, put out by the Federal Reserve in St. Louis, it's a ratio of the you know, gross domestic product of the United States, which is basically all of our sales, all of our revenue uh, from all sources versus or, or a comparison to divided into um, the price of the market. 
uh, all the market, all the companies in the market piled into one place, which is the Wilshire. And so when you when you look at the ratio that existed almost all through the first half of Warren Buffett's investing career from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the ratio is extraordinarily low compared to today. I mean, at some points, the market was priced at 20% of GDP for years. 20% of GDP. Today, it's at 250% of GDP. In other words, the market oh, yeah, relative okay. to GDP is priced for a second, I thought you were higher. saying it was it was below twenty percent of GDP, and I was like, "What? Okay, yes, no, it's it's yeah. just the market price." So, like right now, the market price—I don't even—it might be, it's just huge. It's like the market price is like fifty trillion or something, and GDP is like twenty. You know, and back in the day, if GDP was twenty, the market would be priced at four four trillion, not forty trillion, right? So it's just massive change in, in, uh, I think, you know, overall, many changes have occurred in the market. But uh, part of it is, you know, we just keep pouring money into it, because we don't have any else. Uh, where else are you going to go? Yeah, right? you don't put your money in 1% bonds, that's not going to cut it. So and you know, re real estate has been the beneficiary of this as well. And it's just gone completely nuts. It's completely mm -hmm out of range. People are, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal today, people are in New York Times, people are pairing up to buy houses now, not couples, like singles. Hey, oh yeah, people have been, I've had friends house. who have done that 10 years ago. Yeah, people have been doing that for, because you can't afford it on your own. No, <laughs> you can't afford it on your own. You don't want to just keep pouring money down the drain and you know, rent. In your 30s and it's like, I got to get a roommate because I can't afford to live. I mean, this is why people are moving out of New York and San Francisco and L.A. But that's another yeah. topic. So there's there's the the real issue is is that kind of moat issue. Um, and if you feel strongly about the moat, I think really you're not going to make very many mistakes. Okay. If it, if it's so got this a is really helpful, actually. So I think some sort of solution to this issue of not feeling confident about it, confident enough, is focus on the moat. Focus on the moat, focus on then after that price. Right. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear, check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Right. Okay. Make sure you and, the, and make sure you get the moat right. And then... Remember that we're in a market that's priced at 250% of GDP and just realize it's going to be really unusual to find companies available in the United States that are on sale right now. So we're aggressively looking at emerging, uh, emerging economies and looking at China and trying to puzzle that out. And I can tell you, it's not a six inch bar, mm -hmm. you know? And so the solution to a lot of these problems is just to be patient and the market will change. And when it does, so much of this, this concern about certainty will go away. You'll know 
several great companies you want to own and their price will be completely reasonable. And then yeah. you can buy them. Yeah. So then it's really thinking, okay, this price seems reasonable. It's met all the stuff, all the checklist items. How confident am I that I've got this right, that I actually understand the moat, that all the reading, I haven't like missed something major. Um, and I think for me, that comes down to like understanding the company to to really, you know, not that I can't be wrong about it, but to have a sense of, I've, I've pretty much like gone around the circle of this company in every way that I can think of. I've read every article about it. Nobody else has asked any questions that I haven't, like I haven't missed any questions that have been asked by other people. I've come up with my own concerns. Um, mm -hmm. And what I do is kind of like game out, okay, something bad happens. What happens to this company? Like, what are they going to do about it? And mm -hmm. how's everybody else going to think about them? And how do they like get through five years of terrible sales or, or um, a huge recession? I think that, that's really good. Those are all but, good inversions. But those, that gaming... You know, that's where I think like, oh, I could easily be missing something here. Like probably a pandemic was not on my gaming list before. Yeah. Which years. is which I think falls well within Charlie's vicissitudes of life that yeah. he talks about that are the very reason that we take our certainty, <laughs> right? And then insist on a margin of safety, which mm -hmm. seems contradictory, right? Mm -hmm or at the very yeah. least ironic. I mean, you're so certain, why don't you just buy it? And and the and the reason is because things can happen. You can have pandemics. You can have CEOs that are crappy. You can have unexpected uh, attacks on the moat that you didn't see coming. That's just the nature of life. And by getting that big margin of safety, we are so wonderfully suppressing the impact of those things. So this thing yeah. is already tumbling down because of some problem that they've got. Some event has happened. You know they have a big moat. You're you're confident in management, but you know understand things can happen. Um, what it really what it really needs is just you have really dug into this company and understand it well, and have done all the work, and then you get this big margin of safety. And so you look at the key elements that we're looking at. This company that you understand well has very large free cash flow and mm -hmm. basically no debt. Mm -hmm. So when you combine those two things, just understanding business, you've got money coming in, you don't owe anybody anything, you're in a terrific position to weather a storm mm -hmm. in, in a much better position than most of the companies you're actually competing with in that industry. And so there's another safety, right? By having moat be defined as high free cash flow, no debt. Those mm -hmm. are the elements of understanding the business that we go through on the checklist. We find ourselves in a really strong position to ride out a storm. Mm -hmm. And usually the company that we're riding out the storm with, the stock can go down dramatically. That's not a permanent loss of capital that we fear. It, it that We don't worry about that. That's not losing money. Losing money is a permanent loss of capital where you made a mistake and the company that you bought for $10 is worth five. 
that's that's going to show up and bite you in the rear. But if the company is worth $10 and it goes to five, that's not the same thing. That's just the market fluctuations that are a natural part of the market. Eventually, it will go back. Um, and when it does, the fact that it was one of these really big moat companies means that its competition has gotten much weaker during this recession that's happened. And as yeah. a result of that, this company is going to come out of that recession with less competition, perhaps have purchased some of the competition, you know, and you're in That's a That's really interesting. I had not put that together. Love that. Yeah. That's a very powerful part of the whole thing. Better position I, than the competition. Keep thinking of, uh, like, as an example of this, um, you could look up Bank OZK. Um, which is a regional bank in the United States. It's rated one of the top 50 banks in the in the world, actually. And it's a regional bank um, just run by some really good people who know what they're doing. And um, in 2007 and eight, when there was a huge banking crisis and banks were freezing up, um, over the next few years, America went from having like 9,000 banks to 4,000 banks. So many of them failed and were absorbed. This company was loaded with cash its stock price went down like a brick with everybody else's in the banking industry, mm -hmm. but they were loaded with cash, no debt, and they came out of it as a bank buyer. And they started acquiring banks from the government mm -hmm. that had taken over all these banks. I think they bought 14 banks in two years. And the impact of that on the company was huge. I mean, they just exploded in growth after that. Yeah. So this is a very, you know, prime example of that. Of, of a smart investment team taking or a smart ownership team taking. No, but I think investment team is, is right. Cause I was just thinking, it sounds exactly like the way we think about our investing to be yes. ready at a time when things go down in price and they become available on sale. That's exactly what you're describing. They did with their competitors. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds a bit, sounds like not so nice to take advantage of situations that other companies have found themselves in, but in a way, it saves a company, hopefully saves some jobs that maybe would have otherwise gone away. And oh yeah, and these banks were to... under re these banks were under receivership. Oh yeah, and, I mean they the government had already done the damage, or the the bank had been damaged, and the government had taken over to prevent the shareholders or the uh, the uh, um, all of the people who were putting money in the bank from losing money. So the uh, what OZK did was great on all levels i'm morally financially everything the yeah. guy that did that is george gleason and he is really a terrific ceo i really like the guy a lot i've never met him but um i'm i i appreciate that he manages his bank the way warren buffett manages berkshire <laughs> very very similar you know doesn't worry about what the bank's stock price is, what he worries about is that he's got the cash when he needs it to do the things he wants to do. And it's, yeah. it's runs it runs a good company. Now, you guys who are listening to this, remember, this is not advice. No. Don't run out and buy Bank OZK just Probably because I'm terrible. Here talking about it on a podcast. Probably has all kinds of secrets that <laughs> everybody needs to go find out about. That's right. What there did are. the short sellers say? Yes. <laughs> And there was a strong short seller position against Bank OZK. Isn't there so always? find out why. But I just wrote down, how will this company fare differently than its competition? 
in a downturn? How will they come out of it better than its direct corollaries in the same industry? That's like a really good thought experiment. How are they differently situated? Are they differently situated? Maybe they're not. That's a really good inversion. It's a really cool thing to look at when you go back and look at the last recession. It, it is the primary reason we want to see 10 years of data. Although for the first time in my investing life, 10 years of data isn't enough. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, we have had essentially, you know, we had this pandemic uh, recession, which is, you know, hardly an example of a typical recession. And that's it since 2009 and 2008. So we are historically way over the line in terms of, you know, when a normal recession would occur. Typically, they're averaging about every seven years. And, um, you know, if you can look back far enough, um, I mean, right now we're busy putting data on the toolbox when we come out with our our new release on the toolbox. It's going to have 20 to 30 years of data, which will be really cool. And you can you can see graphs of the data and take out the you can select specific pieces of the data that are outliers and get rid of them, so you can see the the real flow of growth and all that. It's going to be pretty cool. But the point is, deep data is important, especially right now because it's been 13 years since the last real recession. Yeah, and the last recession was kind of short for some companies. Like I was, I've been looking at one that I'm a little obsessed with right now and they really rebounded really quickly. And I, I was looking at, you know, what happened during that time because I wanted to see how they handled it. And I feel, I feel like I don't really have good info because it just kind of was like, oh, right. it was tough for nine months, maybe a year. And then, and then no problem. I mean, there, there are companies out there that in 2007, eight, nine didn't miss a beat in their growth rates. <laughs> they just went right on growing, just like go right on. There, what recession? It was quite amazing. Well, in so a those, way that that's, are fun that's actually really good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Go look at Chipotle for a great example of that. So it's like it just kept growing at twenty percent, just rocking on. So um, I think that's that's probably it for for our checklist, you guys. I think that was. But a, is that a, it for the checklist? I think so. There's nothing Unless else. You want to go over. That's the end of the checklist. That's the end of the checklist. Yeah. No and way. It, obviously, it's it's not your checklist. It's just no. my checklist. Yes. But it's a starting point for you to see how, you know, a pro investor uses a checklist. Um, I've made it available to you guys. Monesh Pabrai has a 90-point checklist, and he won't show show anyone. So you guys have the benefit of seeing mine. You can criticize it. And uh, it's probably the main reason nobody will show you your checklist is there's always something missing. And well, so um, I think it's been it amazing. It's an incredible thing to start from. And I think, I mean, one reason probably people don't show theirs is that it's just so personal. And yeah. it's, you know, it's just set up to make sure that you don't miss anything in your own process. And, um, and we're all a little bit different on that. But I think, God, I think it's just fascinating and amazing. And I'm so glad that we went through it. Yeah, it's pretty darn cool. I mean, it my checklist basically has, you know, five key points, right? You you want to know where the stock comes from, that's radar. You want to understand it well, that's understand the business and that breaks out into the four M's. You want to know that the values are connected 
to your business. You want to know that there's an event that put it on sale and you want to invert it. Those are my five big ones. And then, of course, there's a lot of unpeeling that goes on in each of those. Bill Ackman, you know, made his public, and I really encourage you to go look at it. The We call it the Ackman 8. It starts off the, with simple and predictable. Yeah, we've and, talked uh, about that twice yeah. on yeah, you guys should go look it up and, and and see Bill talk about it a little bit. The key thing is you've got one and you have a you have a process and you use it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, narrow yours down or widen it out. Jim Cramer's got such a long checklist, he wrote a book about it. It just goes on forever. <laughs> and <laughs> so every, everybody's got one. And some of them are just in people's heads. Warren Buffett doesn't have it written down anywhere as far as I know or Charlie's ever said. It's just... Yeah, they've never talked about I that. Mean, Charlie laid it out. You know, understand the business, big moat, management, margin of safety, done. Yeah. You know, it's simple. What are you going to yeah. do the rest of the semester? Simple. Do the. It's like do the math on one page or basically do it in your head is probably what they do. Yeah. But, in your head. you know, realizing that they're on somewhat of a different level when it comes yeah, to they do the they do the math in their head on bank of america i'd like to see any normal person <laughs> do that so <laughs> fair enough All well right. what's simple to those guys isn't simple to me and and uh you know what's simple to you probably isn't simple to me so everybody's got their different take on this and yeah that's what makes it really fun and really engaging yeah so hope you enjoy that's... it and uh time to go play thanks for sharing it with us i really appreciate it see you next time All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.